Welcome to the Health with Hashimoto's podcast. This is where you come to find information that's true and that looks at the whole picture. So if you are sick and tired of constantly hearing from the Western or conventional medical world, just you know, monitor your labs and take this medication. If you're like, wait, no, I know there's more to it. That's why you come here to this podcast. So you can find out that there are other things that you can do. And if you just hear from your crunchy friends that all you have to do is, you know, this supplement or this practice, and you're like, no, I think there's actually something more, like maybe there's medication, then that's where you come. You come here because as an RN and as a holistic health educator, I am able to see the whole picture and I can see that, you know, the pharmaceuticals, there's a whole lot wrong with that industry, but there is a purpose for medications. And when your thyroid isn't working, then sometimes you do need to take medications. And I can also see the other side where I know that there are some natural or holistic or crunchy type solutions that are super, super valuable and research backed. So you come here to this podcast to get a good picture of, you know, what's going on with you, with Hashimoto's in general, and what you can do. And today we are going to talk about the six root causes of Hashimoto's. So you can figure out maybe why you have Hashimoto's and what you can do about it. I believe you always need to know why something happened so that you can figure out how to, you know, mitigate that in the future. If you know why you're having a flare or if you know why you have Hashimoto's, then you can address that cause instead of just putting band-aids on the symptoms, which that is what Western medicine does. And that is why ultimately I left the emergency department because I was so sick and tired of putting band-aids short-term just symptom level band-aids on chronic problems. We weren't helping people actually be well. And that drove me out of the emergency department. It went, it drove me back to school where I learned about the whole person. And you learned about that in the last couple episodes where we talked about the whole you and then holistic weight loss. But today let's talk about the six root causes of Hashimoto's. Now, I'm going to say, I say root, whatever you say, root, root, whatever. Um, I'm from Minnesota and that's what we say. <laughs> my whole family is not from Minnesota. My husband and my boys do not say root. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Hashimoto's, you can get conflicting information online because, well, I think one of the reasons why there's conflicting information is because there's different causes for Hashimoto's. But having a diagnosis of Hashimoto's, it can be confusing. It can be overwhelming. You're unsure of the best steps to take to support your thyroid health, and you want to know what you can do. So we need to dig into why. You're also not looking for generic advice. You want to know, like, for you specifically. Like, it's nice to know the generic stuff. It's nice to know what uh, applies to pretty much everybody with thyroid problems. But when you're looking at your next step, you need to know what applies to you. So today we're going to talk about things in a way that you can create a picture of what you need to do specifically. Now, this is some information that I presented in the um, Hashimoto's Decoded workshop that I did 
I don't know, a month ago. And so I'm going to give you an overview of what we talked about. I'm not going to go into every single thing that we talked about. So first of all, let's talk about why people in general get Hashimoto's. There's three different things, and you've heard me talk about them on this podcast before. Number one, everybody with an autoimmune problem has a genetic component to that autoimmune issue. There's also a gut component, and then there's a trigger. So there's always those three things, and that is autoimmunity in general. There are those three components, and you might not feel like you have a gut component, but that's what that's what we have learned, that there is a gut component, and it doesn't always look like bloating. It can look different for different people. Oh, and by the way, I know I say it at the end of every episode, but this is for informational and educational purposes. I'm not diagnosing you. I'm not treating you. I'm not providing cures. We are talking about this with information so that you can take that information and be empowered to know what to do next for your care. Always, if you have questions, talk to a trusted medical provider. So let's take it from that generic, why do people get Hashimoto's to you? What do you think? Like, can you think back to your genetics? Now, I had no idea that I had Hashimoto's in my family until not only was I diagnosed, but I put it on Facebook. (laughs) When it became Facebook official, that is when I found out from family members that it was on both sides of my family. I had no idea. It took me posting on Facebook before I found out that I had a genetic component. So maybe you don't know, but you actually do have a genetic component. Another thing with a genetic component is most people who were diagnosed with hypothyroid back even 10 years ago, there there wasn't a discussion about this is probably autoimmune in nature. We now know that about 90% of hypothyroid is caused by the autoimmune condition, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So maybe like you know that your mom or your grandma takes this Synthroid medication every day, but that's where it ends. Well, that means that they probably, but not for sure, they probably have Hashimoto's and you do have a genetic component. So the genetic component, you're gonna think about that, you're gonna think about the gut, but then what about those triggers? There are about We're going to talk about eight most common triggers and figure out which ones are relatable for you. Now, keep in mind that Hashimoto's or any autoimmune condition can take years to develop. And then even after you feel like you have symptoms that you're noticing, it can take four years on average to get diagnosed. And in that time, most people see or the average person sees four different providers to figure out what's going on. So, you know, when you think about these triggers or when you're listening to me, you're going to be like, okay, I'm thinking right now, but also think back to when things first started. And then even before that, what might have been the triggers for you? I'm going to tell you the whole list of eight right now, and then we'll go through each one of them. Also, these are not in any particular order. I just have eight. Uh, Number one, hormone changes. Number two, iodine. Number three, vitamin D. Number four, food reactions. Number five, environmental chemicals. Number six, stress. Number seven, blood sugar issues. And number eight, infections of any kind. So number one was hormonal changes. Now there's three different times of life when women typically develop Hashimoto's. Now all of this is like general, 
obviously you are a unique human being and your story might not be exactly any of these. But in general, women develop Hashimoto's in three different times. They're called the three P's, puberty, pregnancy, and perimenopause. Now, I'm going to give you a disclaimer on that perimenopause. When you think menopause, that's actually perimenopause. Menopause is a one-day thing. It is the one-year anniversary of the first day of your last period. If you have gone 365 days without a period, that is officially menopause. That's like one day. Perimenopause refers to the several years leading up to that one day where you are experiencing all of these changes and your body is undergoing all these hormone changes. So the three Ps are puberty, pregnancy, and perimenopause. When you're going through these three Ps, your hormones are quite different. They're all changing. And that seems to be a trigger for Hashimoto's. The second one is iodine. Now, I have not covered iodine a whole lot on this podcast because when I come to you, I want to have all of the current research that I can find distilled in some, into something that is true and simple for you, and I want to give you sustainable tips so that you can implement it. Well, iodine... It's really hard to figure that out because there's really well done published research on both sides of the iodine issue. Some people say that iodine is bad. Some people say that iodine is good. So what I'm going to tell you, um, it applies to all nutrients, pretty much everything for your body. Your body likes a like Goldilocks place. It doesn't want too much. It doesn't want too little. Your body is like Goldilocks. And that comes, that goes from pretty much every single nutrient, even water. If you have too much, it is a bad thing. Iodine is the same. So whether you're going to go, you know, to one side or the other, there's valid research for both. You really have to listen to your body. We know that too little iodine can be a trigger for Hashimoto's and for thyroid problems. We also know that too much can also be a problem for Hashimoto's. Vitamin D is the third trigger. We've talked about vitamin D quite a bit on this podcast because it is so simple to fix and it plays a really big role. It is one of the only things that I have seen where there is like a direct correlation. If you increase your vitamin D and, you know, in your blood, if you increase that, your um, antibodies, one specific antibody goes down. Like that's what they found in the research. When they gave people vitamin D, then their antibodies went down. I haven't seen that for anything else. Now, vitamin D is not technically as a vitamin, it's a hormone, and you can make your own from exposure to the sun. Where I live, which is north of Chicago, there's that imaginary line that goes through Chicago, and if you live north of there, after the fall equinox, then you can be outside naked all day long, and you will not be able to make enough vitamin D from the sun exposure. So where I live, we are nearing that time. It is almost the fall equinox, and we can be outside all day long and not make enough. So then what? 
Well, then you have to eat foods that are fortified with vitamin D. Um, there is, you know, obviously vitamin D in some things like fish bones, I believe salmon bones and sardines. That's why if you eat salmon and sardines, it can help your vitamin D. Um, vitamin D fortified milk, of course, has vitamin D. But the people who research vitamin D, they say that it is really, really difficult, if not impossible, to get as much vitamin D as you need from food. So that is why my family um, supplements. I have gotten my blood tested and I increased my supplementation based on my lab results. The boys, we have not tested them, their vitamin D levels. We just give them a certain amount a day based on recommendations from, again, people who have studied vitamin D. I'll put a link below to the Frontline Doctors site. I have been talking about vitamin D every single fall for... A 15 or 20 years because we know from the research that vitamin D is one of the most important things and one of the most effective things that you can do for flu season. Now, of course, it's not just the influenza virus that we're fighting, but the research still shows that having a good serum vitamin D level, so that means in your blood, is one of the most effective things that you can do to stay healthy um, against respiratory viruses. I've been saying that for as long as I can remember back when they had notes on Facebook, like almost like blog posts. I had one that I would post every year and that's a really long time ago. So anyway, vitamin D is a, or low vitamin D is one of the triggers for autoimmune problems, specifically for Hashimoto's. The fourth trigger is food reactions. Now, this can be obviously particular to you because you are a unique individual. Some of the big ones are gluten, dairy, and soy. Now, gluten, I keep saying I'm going to do a podcast episode on it, but I haven't tackled it yet because, well, I... I always feel like there's more to learn about gluten. We know that it can be a really big deal to give up gluten, and maybe that's why I haven't tackled it, because I know that when I talk about it, it adds stress to some people because they feel like that's something that I can't do right now. And so I don't want to put that on you. That being said, about 80% of people who went through a study that Dr. Isabella Wentz did and they took out gluten from their diet, about 80% of them felt better. So we know that those of us with Hashimoto's tend to do better when gluten is removed from our diet. The same thing with dairy and soy. They can be very reactive foods, and a lot of that is because they are inflammatory. Now, when our bodies are dealing with inflammation, that can, you know, throw off our immune system. And so gluten, dairy, soy, and sugar are all very inflammatory. So they can be some of the foods that cause a trigger for Hashimoto's. Another food reaction that you might not have ever heard of is bromine. Now, bromine is added to flour as a conditioner. I do not understand the flour industry. I don't understand what that means. I just know that we have bromides or bromine added to our, our processed foods, our processed baked goods. Um, I don't know if it's a preservative or what. I have heard that it is a flour conditioner. Now, bromine, I'm going to go a little chemistry on you. Bromine is in the same column as 
iodine in the periodic table of elements. Now in the column, there are also other halogens or halides. There's fluorine or fluoride, chlorine or chloride, bromine or bromide, which I just talked about, and then iodine. And that is going from top to bottom. Now the things that are on the top of the periodic table, they are lighter. So chemically speaking, they are lighter and things that are lighter can displace the things that are heavier. So if iodine is the fourth one down on that list, that means bromine or bromide and chlorine or chloride and fluorine and fluoride can all displace the iodine. So if your thyroid needs iodine to function, and it does when your thyroid puts out you know, that thyroid hormone, we call it T4. The four stands for four molecules of iodine. So of course your thyroid needs iodine because that's what it uses to produce, you know, the thyroid hormone. So if it doesn't have enough iodine or if, you know, the bromine or the chlorine or the fluorine are taking the place of the iodine, then you're going to have some problems. So we talked about food reactions, food you know, caused things that are triggers and bromine can be one of those things. But then that goes right into the next trigger, which is environmental chemicals. And where do we put bromine? Well, I'm not sure. It's in both as a trigger because it is an environmental chemical, but it's in your food. There are other things that we just talked about that are also environmental chemicals that can be triggers. For example, the water you drink, is it chlorinated or does it have fluoride in it? Both of those things, we just talked about the periodic table of elements and I told you how, you know, the things that are lighter in that same column can interfere with the heavier things like the iodine. So environmental chemicals can include as a trigger can include things that are in your water, things that are in your bread, like that bromine. But what about clothing? Everything that has a fire retardant on it is a, it is like soaked, it's saturated in environmental chemicals. So when you were growing up, did you ever have the footy pajamas? I loved them. We would not get them very often because my parents would say that the feet be, would begin to stink, even, you know, laundered appropriately. But did you know that all child's sleepwear has fire retardant chemicals added to it unless it is snug fitting and then it specifically will say like not fire retardant, make sure that this is always snug fitting. Legally, at least in America, children's pajamas have to be fire retardant, have some layer of that. But it's not just our clothing, it's also our furniture. Everything that has a non-stick coating, you know, we see it in commercials, and it's going to be stain resistant, which is, I mean, good for cleaning, but not necessarily good for your health. There are environmental chemicals all around us. Non-stick cookware has environmental chemicals, cleaning products, there's are obviously chemicals. Now there's good ones and there's bad ones. Personal care products, the same. There's good ones, there's bad ones. There's so many different chemicals that we are exposed to. In fact, the Environmental Working Group, they did a study on babies and cord blood. They found an average of 200 different industrial chemicals and pollutants in umbilical cord blood. And that is, you know, while well, the baby is in the safest place that we hope to ever have them. 
when the baby is still inside mom, we believe that, you know, they are the safest ever. And already they're being exposed to so many different chemicals. And then they come out and they start breathing the air. Also, incidentally, did you know that indoor air is generally more contaminated than outside air? So open your windows. Um, And that's where we're going to stop for today because I try to keep these podcast episodes, you know, 20 minutes-ish. And that's where we are right now. So I'm going to stop this after five of the eight triggers and we will continue next week with six, seven, and eight. And then also what you can do because I am never going to leave you with just, you know, the facts. I always want to leave you with hope or what you can do because living in fear and living in stress about what you're exposed to, that's actually worse for your immune system and we will get into that next week. So let's talk about um, triggers number six, seven, and eight, and then your plan going forward next week. I will see you then. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please be sure to discuss any concerns and plans with your trusted healthcare professional. 